0: And in the name of the Spirit of God, who raised him from the dead. Amen. Amen. Our gospel passage for today is arguably among the better known accounts in the gospel canon. It has even found its way into our vernacular, giving us the moniker Doubting Thomas, which describes someone who will not believe a claim unless it's presented with personal, direct evidence. The disciple Thomas is one of many figures throughout the Gospel of John, whose individual intimate encounter with Jesus reveals something important to the reader about the nature of Jesus, faith, salvation, and truth. Another of these encounters directly precedes the passage of our focus today, which Reverend Ellendale so beautifully preached on last week. In the shadow of early morning, the resurrected Christ reveals himself first to a grief-stricken Mary Magdalene, who is weeping outside his tomb. A particularly tender and intimate moment in this account is when Jesus at last discloses his identity by calling Mary by name. In true Jesus fashion, our Lord gives revelation through relationship. Jesus' encounter with Thomas recorded shortly after this episode is no less personal and relational. There has been much discussion about the account of Thomas in this chapter of John's gospel. Indeed, as I looked at commentaries and honestly blog posts, I found that this narrative has given rise to multiple theories and perhaps more importantly, questions. Questions sometimes raised in a disconcerted or even frantic manner. Was it okay for Thomas to insist on his own face-to-face encounter with Christ Is faith without seeing superior to the faith which comes by seeing? Is God more pleased with those who do not need to see to believe? There seems to be an underlying anxiety in these questions about the potential to anger God with our struggles to believe. What is the truth about all of this? While I may not be able to offer definitive answers to these questions, I will give my own reflections and speculations as a result of grappling with the narrative of Thomas, a beautiful vignette, which I believe reveals a Jesus of patient loving pursuit. We do not know why Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples. Some have suggested that in his chronic curmudgeonly pessimism he isolated himself following the devastation of the crucifixion. Alternatively, others have noted that the disciples' hideout may not have been, may have been more diasporic than the simple upper room we may envision. Thus, it may not have been intentional on Thomas's part to be missing. Whatever the reason was for Thomas's absence, Jesus ultimately leveraged the situation in a meaningful and intentional way in his relationship with the disciple. The story is familiar. Many of the disciples have just seen the risen Lord and likely with great joy, seek out Thomas to tell him the wonderful news. But he refuses to believe their testimony. He needs to see for himself. This can be seen as hard heartedness, stubbornness or unbelief. But perhaps there was a deeper issue. The pain of exclusion. After a traumatic and perplexing several days, one can imagine Thomas thinking, why wasn't I included? Why did Jesus appear to others, but not to me? I want so badly to believe that he has risen. Could it be true? I just want to see for myself. It seems that Jesus comes to the disciples a second time, with possibly the sole purpose of seeking out Thomas. After once again greeting the disciples, one can imagine Jesus immediately jumping in, eagerly showing Thomas his wounds. Maybe Jesus' exhortation shortly thereafter to not doubt, but believe, can be heard in a lovingly enthusiastic and encouraging tone, not necessarily stoic, detached, or scolding. Whatever the truth is about these details, Jesus' recorded actions make it clear that he was willing to accommodate Thomas's request in exact detail, a gesture which in itself evidences radical humility and love. In that moment, Thomas must have, helped, must have felt truly seen, realizing that Jesus knew what he longed for and had taken it to heart. Some have said that Thomas was not justified in demanding his own in the flesh encounter with Jesus. Certainly, he should be able to trust the eyewitness testimony of multiple people, not to mention people he has journeyed with in following Jesus for such a long time. Even if this were true, perhaps Jesus was more concerned about winning Thomas back than about the morality of belief or unbelief. After all, The whole basis of our faith is that Jesus ultimately cared more about winning all of us back than about what we rightly deserved through our own unbelief. If Jesus can leave eternal bliss to live a painful human life and die an agonizing death to bring all of humanity back to him, he can certainly make an extra stop at the disciples hideout to gently win over a doubting disciple. And this indeed is the remarkable thing. While he is under no obligation to do so, Jesus meets Thomas exactly where he is in his doubting, in his need for a personal, tangible encounter. How has Jesus met you in your pain? Possibly when you felt excluded, when you felt like God had passed you over for other people. How has he shown up in a way that speaks uniquely to you, even in the way you secretly demand him to, though he is not beholden to such requests, just to show you he is there. Perhaps the week Jesus made Thomas wait to personally see him in resurrected form was also intentional. When has God made you wait until it seemed like he would never show up only to reveal himself when you had given up hope? While there can be much debate about the appropriateness or lack thereof, of Thomas's request to see Jesus's wounds for himself. None would object that Thomas's ultimate response is good or right. As some commentators have aptly pointed out, the text leaves open the possibility that Thomas believed immediately upon seeing Jesus without having to touch Jesus's wounds after all. A spine chilling confession escapes his lips. My Lord and my God. In the span of a few seconds, Thomas goes from being one who doubts to one who declares making possibly the most direct proclamation of Jesus's divinity in the entire New Testament. Like his fellow disciple, Peter, who was known for both declaring the Messiahship of Jesus and denying his association with Christ, Thomas is another example of God using frail and perfect people to reveal the most glorious truths about him. Jesus's response to Thomas's newly rediscovered faith is arguably the cause of much of the discussion surrounding this passage. Some translations render the first line as a statement. You have believed because you have seen me. Other render it as a question. Have you believed because you have seen me? And then the clincher, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. What is Jesus saying here about the relationship between seeing and believing? Do his words imply that it is superior or more commendable to believe without seeing? The situation may be more complicated than it appears at face value. The Johannine epistles, the literary corpus connected to John's gospel, emphasize the importance of seeing for confirming claims concerning faith. The opening lines of first john read we declare to you what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life this life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the father and was revealed to us what we have seen and heard we also declare to you that you may also may have fellowship with us. I will have to concede, of course, that this passage assumes an audience which will not see and thus needs written testimony. But what about those who provide this testimony on account of what they have seen? Or the disciples who did initially see Jesus on the first day of his resurrection? Is their experience or resulting faith inferior to the faith of those who would come after them? On the contrary, their faith by sight is essential, the foundation of the scriptures and the testimony which gives those who come after them something credible on which to base their faith. Furthermore, corporeal encounters with Jesus are crucial to verifying his full humanity. Our God is one of personal encounter, a God who delights in yes, commands that each of us taste, see, and touch his goodness for ourselves. And yet, reconsidering Jesus' final words to Thomas, for many believers, a significant element of this personal experiential knowing may be a faith that operates independent of certain direct evidence. We can be sure that Jesus is glad that Thomas has returned to belief. After all, it seems that he sought out Thomas intentionally to achieve this end. Yet Jesus also makes it clear that there is deep blessing, a special blessing perhaps, in believing without having all of the evidence. I want to reflect a bit more on this question. Is it better to believe without seeing than to believe as a result of seeing? If anything, what is certain is that it is better to see and believe than to see and not believe. This might seem like an unneeded, obvious statement, but the New Testament provides us with examples of those who saw everything they should have needed to believe but ultimately did not. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we are told that the 11 remaining disciples went to Galilee as Jesus commanded Upon seeing the resurrected Christ, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The mention of 11 rather than 12 disciples is a sobering reminder of the actions of Judas, who, though he had seen every incredible work Jesus had done, ultimately decided he did not want to share in his suffering and even more sadly received Jesus's forgiveness. One is also reminded of the tropes of religious leaders or crowds, who after seeing undeniable miracles performed by Jesus react with anger or ultimate apathy, simply walking away. In contrast, though he is perhaps tempted to fully give in to hard heartedness and unbelief. Thomas reaches a place of humble repentance upon seeing the evidence before him. Furthermore, what is striking is the nature of this evidence. Far from the grandiose, miraculous acts demanded of Jesus by so many. The irrefutable evidence for the disciples that this man in front of them is in fact their friend and savior is his scars. Sustained by dying a shameful criminal's death at the hands of Rome. In just a matter of days, The disciples have gone from not understanding or previously rebuking Jesus for his suffering, in the case of Peter, to seeing this as the very thing that confirms his identity. It is hard to fathom the utter shock and disbelief that would have hit the disciples when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem quickly descended into such harrowing chaos. Yes. Jesus prophesied that this would happen to them many times, but would anyone else have done any better understanding or accepting this? We do do not naturally want to suffer. None of us want to see the dreams we put our hope in die. And yet, through nothing short of a miracle, the disciples are transformed to see this death of their plans and dreams, this death of Jesus as the precious means through which they and the whole world are saved. We have been considering questions surrounding seeing and belief in regard to those who were with Jesus, or shortly thereafter. I want to now consider what all of this means for us today. To reiterate, Jesus makes it clear that those who do not see him and yet believe in him are deeply blessed our epistle passage for this morning, which is so wonderfully rich, beautifully states, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Earlier on in the passage, we are told of the incredible inheritance that awaits us, imperishable, unable to be taken away by anyone or anything. What is the one thing that we all universally have not seen and have yet been called to believe in? Is it not this inheritance? It can be hard to wrap our minds around the glory and the joy that awaits us. We are told that we will reign with Christ forever that in his eternal kingdom, his brightness will replace and far outstrip the sun, and that we will judge angels. I don't know about you, but in my still sinful and fallen state, I definitely don't feel ready to judge angels. The sheer freedom from corruption and strangeness of this eternal dwelling place can make it hard for us to believe in, to envision, to anticipate. I don't believe that is the only reason why it is difficult to believe in, however. Peter's words also remind us of what we will endure in here and now. In all sorts of ways, we will suffer and experience the full brunt of what this fallen world has to offer. Yet our suffering is not useless or pointless we are told that God will use every last thing, even the things that seem inexplicable or meaningless to refine us, to renew us, to reveal his love to us, to draw us closer to him. At last, when we are freed from the shackles of this earthly life and all its pain, we will like Thomas see our resurrected Lord face to face. And that memory of what we had suffered will make our unspeakable joy all the sweeter. Our Lord is not exempt from this. The heavenly cry of praise to him as the lamb who was slain is a constant reminder of what he suffered for us. But in that heavenly kingdom, the present sting of pain, and I believe that the pain brought by memories will forever be done away with. Yes, our joy then will be unspeakable and full of glory. But in his epistle, Peter tells us, not as an exhortation, but as a matter of fact, that we rejoice in this manner now as we endure our trials. Have you laid hold of this joy? This joy, which is rightfully yours as a child of God and which was bought for you when Jesus endured the cross for you. I am grateful we worship a God who does not rebuke us for grieving. He understands our pain. He went through it himself, but he also longs to infuse our earthly grief and our earthly happiness too, with the joy that is based in his eternal purpose. In this Easter season, may we be reminded that deep, undefeatable joy is always accessible to us, even on our darkest days. When we wonder if God has abandoned us, may we be reminded that Jesus suffered the true darkness of forsakenness, so we never will. This time of year, as spring arrives in tandem with the Easter season, I find it easier to feel a certain joy and lightness in my soul. For the seven or so years I have lived in New Haven, I have come to love walks up Prospect Hill in the dazzling sun, which filters through all sorts of vibrantly colored blossoms and leaves and is beautifully contrasted against the almost unnaturally blue sky. I often think this must be a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, my eternal inheritance. In these moments, the pain, darkness, dullness, monotony and chaos of this present fallen world seems to fade away. In contrast, many times spent simply walking around the same city have brought these characteristics of our fallen world into full view all this time here, all this time praying, and nothing seems to change. And yet I know deep down that God is always working and doing incredible things on a small and mustard seed like scale, bringing restoration and healing one person at a time, one conversation at a time, one relationship at a time. Jesus' words to Thomas and to us are an awe inspiring beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In closing, I want to expand on this and offer some more beatitudes I believe the Lord has placed on my heart to share with you all. Blessed are those who grieve. May God lovingly fill their hearts with hope. Blessed are the doubting. May God lovingly reassure them. Blessed are those who work for justice with confidence and expectation. When nothing seems to change. Blessed are those who pray for and seek to love the hurting and the lost and the poor. When those they reach out to, they reach out to do not seem to change. And blessed are all of us who, though now we suffer all kinds of trials, believe that one day at God's right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Amen.